Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good one, too. Fine. Okay, let's go. The grumpy old man. The rock star is something to be. Absolutely. It's funny, isn't it? It's great. That's great. Are we rolling? It's based on a character, Jim Roy. You won't won't know the royal family, I shouldn't think. There's a television program in which the the old man is this grumpy old guy in his carpet slippers. Sits in a chair. With his cup of tea. It's based on the old ashtray. It's based on him, the grumpy old man. So we welcome to the podcast, Nile Rogers. Very excited. We're very excited. Niall, uh, you've been, as I say, you've probably been in the nicest studios, most luxurious studios in the world in your illustrious career. What do you think of the word podcast studio? Um, it's interesting. It's, uh, <laughs> describe funky, describe it? it for, for, uh, for the oh, listeners. Well, <laughs> uh, it's, um, it's what I would call, they have industrial carpet here. Yeah. Uh, and the walls are rather industrial too. They, they have an exposed brick, which they've tried to disguise by whitewashing it. Um, Ah, and, and the, an acoustic tile ceiling. Yes, getting with, better. Yeah, with um, uh, halogen lights. and uh, So you can make an album in here easily. Oh, easy. Easy. Especially in today's world, for sure. Now, traditionally, Niles, uh, now, first time on, on the podcast, we always ask anybody, what music was in their house when they were growing up as a child? What records were there? Um, it, main, if it was uh, my mom's house... Uh, it was mainly jazz. It was mo- what, what they called modern jazz in those days. Uh, bebop and the music that uh, directly followed bebop. A lot of freeform jazz, even atonal stuff. We'd listen to, you know, uh, you know, weird stuff. Well, they'd sit you down to listen to Albert Eiler. Well, there's something oh, totally. at the age of six. Oh, I was, was going to say the age of four. Dude, I'm glad that you know yeah. Albert. Absolutely. <laughs> Albert Eiler. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Cecil Taylor. And, I mean, in my house, um, you know, people like that were really revered. I mean, I grew up on, on that sort of thing. So this is all documented in your, in your autobiography, Le Freak which is just out, which we're going to talk about and talk about go right through to your, you know, your illustrious musical career. But, but first of all, you had what I would consider a somewhat unconventional childhood. 
Did it strike you as unconventional at the time? And tell us about that. Well, I was raised by um, parents that were very bohemian. Um, My my, uh, stepfather was Jewish, um, white Jewish, not Sephardic Jew. Um, And... uh, you know, we—he was cool. He was a beatnik. My mom was a beatnik, a really, really hip beatnik too. Um, matter of fact, that's sort of like an oxy. I mean, they, yeah, they, they were hip. They were hip. A hip beatnik. Hip. Yeah, yeah, hip automatically beatnik, hip. Right. They're automatically hip, right? Yeah. So. But she was very, very young. She was, when she, I mean, she was in high school when she. When, when she no, did. my mother never went to high school. Uh, what, did, really? Was she pregnant no. when she was in high school? No, no, junior high school, as we call it in America. Junior it's middle school for you, I right, believe. Right, right, right. So she's and my mom was only thirteen. Yeah, she, as she says. Uh, Rather directly and openly, she says, I just had one period. And the only reason why I had sex with your father is because my girlfriend was having sex with his friend in the other room. They didn't know what to do. They were sitting around and twiddle, she was, twiddling she, their thumbs. How old when she, was, when, she, when, when she became your mother? How old was she? Uh, 14. 14. She just turned 14. Because there's a bit in the book where you, you vividly recall her 21st birthday party. Oh, I was Not many big. people can say that. <laughs> can I was, let's be honest. When my mom turned 21, I was big. I was as tall as she yeah, was. Yeah, you were yeah. serving the drinks. Yeah. You were drinking oh, the drinks. drinking the drinks. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't drinking the drinks. But yeah, I could have been serving them. So um, our household was very colorful. Um, there's one bit where I talk about um, uh, Thelonious Monk coming over to buy my mother's fur coat. Because in those days, um, <laughs> if you had a heroin habit, uh, you know, it was like a barter system. They, they believed in pawn shops, everything. Everything in your house was just temporary. It was on, always yeah, on loan. Liquidity were, is yeah, what you needed. Just assets. Things were going in you and out. Right. You want to monetize. Here's a coat. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, man. Uh, hey, babe. Uh, I need to get off tonight. Okay, Bobby. Well, what are you going to do? Um, my man really digs the car. Like, well, you know, so things, the value of, of stuff just fluctuated uh, quite often. Well, actually, it sort of made sense. So... All these loans were sort of securitized by things that were uh, had a much greater value, much greater book value than what it was yes. on the street. So yeah. it was a cool loan to take. You know, you can get a, a fur coat for, you know, fifteen twenty dollars. That was worth a thousand dollars. But you didn't find any of that off putting. There's a bit where you talk about being about seven. It's very, it's very moving actually. All about how you say you spend almost all of your time alone and you grow up very quickly. Uh, but you're constantly surrounded by, I think the phrase was, junkies in full nod. <laughs> and I'm surprised that that didn't, uh, didn't put you off somehow, because clearly you had a, 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 a drug moment yourself. No. But they, you didn't find this off-putting. No, or... they were, oh, man, the, my fam- they were, they're great. They were really, really great. Um, sometimes it would take a while to get to the end of a sentence, but, uh, <laughs> but the, the content was always... A rocking party. Isn't no, it? <laughs> the content was always interesting. And I'll, I'll never forget uh, one of our family best buddies was this guy named Harold, and Harold was this incredibly gifted artist. And even though I couldn't devote many words in the book to him, but I just had to talk about him, and I said that he's the greatest gentleman junkie I have ever met. Because Harold used to have conversations with me. I'm all of five, six years old, and we'd contemplate the films of Alfred Hitchcock. And I remember one day he said something to me. I wanted to get get this in the book, but my editors just took it out. But we were sitting around, and he was in full nod one day, and he went, Ah, man, that Hitchcock is a bitchcock. (laughs) (laughs) 
wise words. I just defend. Yes, Harold. That sums it up perfectly. That Hitchcock. So that's how you got it into the public domain via the word podcast. The word podcast. <laughs> I assume it was going to be illegal attached to this, but there is. So it, it, it was, you know, happy in some senses, your childhood, but you were also moved back and forth, weren't you, between the West Coast and the East? And yeah. You were kind of looking for a sense of belonging. You talk in the book about, about getting a sense of belonging from the oddest people, the Black Panthers and the Scouts. Yeah, but that, that's not odd. <laughs> well, as the same as Keith Richards. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us about the Scouts. Remember the Scouts. The Scouts were great. Uh, um, after-school programs um, in America, especially for poor people, uh, were the main uh, motivator, the main motivation tool for advancement in America. If you, if you look at people sort of similar to myself, um, they got those opportunities because of after-school programs either. The Cub Scouts, the Boy Scouts of America, um, Police Athletic League, all of that stuff. Now, most people took to sports, and, and that's how they got out of the ghetto, as we would say. But I, I was good at sports, but I was much better at science and music. And they, had, they didn't have too many science after-school programs, but they had lots of music. Music in America was everywhere. And one of the greatest after-school programs that I had was the Jazzmobile, which was totally free. And it was the same as Cub Scouting and almost the same as the Black Panthers. It was community-based. Um, it was funded. It was a charitable situation. And it was, it was brilliant. So the, the, the DNA that runs through all of these different types of after-school, I mean, Black Panthers were not exactly an after school <laughs> program, but it was After still school. Well, the school of hard knocks. Come on, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> but um, no, it, it uh, the, the great thing about having this sort of communal type of uh, upbringing, um, they all felt the same. It, w- it wasn't it wasn't a giant leap to go from the Cub Scouts to the Black Panthers because we actually did the same thing. If, if what was my day like in the Black Panthers? Okay, wake up in the morning, you get food, you serve it to kids. If an old, if an elderly person needed to be helped crossing the street, that's what you did. Boy Scouts, that's <laughs> sure, what we did. Sure, sure. You yeah. know, people in those days used to wait. <laughs> no, but they waited for you. They, uh, you know, a person who was blind or old, they would stand at the corner and wait for someone to walk them across right, the street. Right. It was totally commonplace in those days. Now maybe it's better now. Maybe people more self-sufficient but th- there was this symbiotic relationship between the, the the kids or the haves and the have-nots and we all sort of work together to bring everybody up right, right. um it's not a giant leap but you know people want to paint it as some you know yeah the black, black panthers we had a political agenda and we were a community organization and and all that sort of stuff but basically we just made life better for everybody for people. okay now one thing you touch on in the book which uh, mark and i are absolutely fascinated by because we we collect examples of this uh, great musicians who were hospitalized as a child with a serious condition. You, so, so there yeah. are lots of us? Well, yeah, did you not know that? I had no yeah. idea. Joni Mitchell was in hospital for for years with TB as, as, a, as a child. Same kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, was wow. it Paul? Oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I got yeah. Neil Young too. Yeah, yeah Nick Ringo Starr. You know, Ringo Starr was in the hospital for 11 months at one point. Wow. Yeah. And you talk in the Johnny book. Rotten was in hospital for, I think, well, about So you months. didn't know this. Yeah. Okay. I had well, no idea. It's all they all say very fascinatingly, much like what you said, which is if you have to entertain yourself alone in this miserable environment, you know, you, you, you allow, you become very imaginative, you become very self-sufficient, and also you entertain yourself by listening to music all the time, don't you? Yes, yeah. you talk about singing to yourself, don't you? Yeah, tell all us the about time. That. That's so what I used to do. So you went in there and with asthma? Yeah, I was, I, I had asthma, and it was 
really debilitating, and I would get uh, asthma attacks on a very frequent basis. Um, in the book, I, I show how my uh, family physician said, oh, his asthma attacks are coming more regularly. Um, we have to put him in a convalescent home. And, um, and, and what had happened is I was outside playing with my friends, and it was freezing. And the kids could see the snow melting because my temperature, my body temperature was so hot. The snow was melting on my head. Everybody's looking at me like, <laughs> it was like, it was almost like a comedy routine. Because um, we were outside because we were waiting for this one guy in the neighborhood who would give all the kids money. And I wasn't going to miss my quarter. Um, but I had a high fever and that was it. And that was the catalyst because I spent the early part of my life in oxygen tents. And I felt really alone, um, very segregated from people because I could see them all walking around and having a good time but what I, age I, could, I was really young so yeah. I, let's just say that it was probably earlier than this but I became self-aware when I was maybe four and a half or five so it was around five years old that I can remember seeing people uh, I can remember um, intelligent uh, conversations I can remember um, having conversations about the food uh, so that had to be at five. I couldn't. Right. I don't yeah, remember yeah. at four. And you were looking through a screen, pretty much. Uh, yeah, through, a yeah, well, yeah, an oxygen tent, which was, um, which was a regular bed, which had um, plastic, um, like a sort of plastic enclosure. Um, so you put the handrails up so the kid doesn't fall out of the bed. Although yeah, I was sure, pretty sure. cool, I wasn't going to fall out of bed. But <laughs> they put these the the side rails up, and then they enclose it and they feed oxygen through a tube. And they, I guess the concept is the. Uh, actually, I don't want to guess because I don't really know what the medical concept is. But what it felt like to me, the temperature in the interior was always the same. So you never felt it was a, it was weird. Because life isn't like that. You know, you're always adjusting. You know, you're taking off your shirt or you're, you know, when you're a kid and you're opening this. But inside the the oxygen tent, it was always this constant temperature and a certain amount of moisture. And one of the weirdest days of my life was when my glasses steamed up because I was horribly nearsighted as a kid. So yeah. you you got nearsightedness, you got you, super really skinny, off you got asthma. Right? Yeah, it was like, how's this dude even going to make it? Um and my glasses fogged up and I couldn't see, you know, being near. It was terrifying. I was like, ah. And the nurse comes and she rescues me. And I went, wow, nurses are cool. So when you're a little kid, Everywhere. those are, the, yeah, those are the type of things that you remember. And you say, oh, the woman who wears the, the thing in the red and white stripes, they're cool. They're beautiful. They're fantastic. And then everybody like that becomes that to me. So uh, if you look at the, the book, um, I still view the world in this very peculiar childish way you know to me all musicians are cool even when i meet weird ones they're still cool because yeah. just because they're musicians they're cool right. um if i meet people who are in uh political organizations community-based even if they're weird to me they're cool yeah even cults are cool to me because i was a hippie I, I lived in a commune so i get it when they say well the branch davidians believe that you know so-and-so <laughs> in this spaceship is going to come and take away i know those guys <laughs> right. Fair enough. I, I, and reserve me a seat pal yes, please. And, yeah. you know it's like i, I grew up it, w- during my hippie era 
every other day there was a new religion. It was like, like how do you guys think of this stuff? So every day there was like, <clears throat> okay, you're Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist, you're um, a Hare Krishna, um, you're a Scientologist. I mean, this is like every other day. And it's like, you know, a cute girl would come up and say, hi, I'm from the Church of Scientology. And you go, absolutely. Talk about how you got into music. You, you, uh, you talk about in the book, you know, going around, you're all singing tunes in your head, you are composing arrangements and so forth in your head. But then you talk about well, the first time somebody showed you how to tune a guitar. It was a bit of a bit of a breakthrough, wasn't it? Was it? A revelation. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've been playing it without it being properly tuned. Is that right? I've been fooling around with it. Yes, right. I wouldn't call it playing. I was playing at it. Um, I, I uh, was fooling around with the guitar, and I thought because at the time that I picked up a guitar seriously, uh, I had already been relatively proficient in uh, classical music. I, I, I had played um, a number of woodwinds, but at that time, the last woodwind I played was the clarinet. And the clarinet has the same written range as the guitar. So the low E on the clarinet is like the low E. So I'm like looking at the yeah. music, trying to figure out how come I can't make this guitar do that? Right. <laughs> how come I can't make this guitar play, you know, Prokofiev? I can't make it play, you know, Peter and the Wolf. I don't understand. You know, what's going on here? So I'm fooling around with this thing. and It's just not working. And um, my mother's boyfriend at the time comes in and he hears me doing whatever I was doing. Um, now, remember, I was practicing like every day, just really efficiently, day in and day out. And I thought that it was my fingering uh, that wasn't quite right. And in uh, with woodwinds, we call it embouchure, the position of your yeah, mouth yeah, on the... the so I kept thinking the positioning of my fingers are just not quite right. But as soon as I get it, it's just going to magically sing out. Right. And then I'll remember that and the muscle memory will kick in and I'll keep doing that. And anyway, so I had... Muscle memory, that's a good phrase. So I bought this Beatles songbook. Right? And I was just trying to get it. And no matter what I did, no matter how I moved my fingers, it didn't speak. So my mother's boyfriend came and retuned it. He picked up the guitar and went, whoa, you got this thing tuned like a banjo or something or a violin. Hold on a second. But that must have been magical. So suddenly you, the same things that you were doing make the, the right That's noise. exactly yeah. what happened. He, yeah. re, he tuned this thing up and I looked at my little Beatles songbook and I went, boom. Clang. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I mean, it was... Christmas and yeah. everything rolled into one and I went I read the news today oh boy but a lot slower about a lucky man who made the grave but I was like going I don't want to slow down for radio but it was but it was perfect yeah. and I was like Oh my God! Turned the page back to the beginning and was Let's into start again. it, and just played the whole song. You've been listening to the free feed of the Word podcast. The full album-length version is only available to subscribers to the magazine. To sign up and to hear the rest of this podcast, go to www.wordpodcast.co.uk. Mm-hmm.